I, man, <laughs> it's less the wonders of the Orient and more the wonders of the, the shittiness of, of the, yeah, <laughs> the well, shittiness of the the uh, col- <laughs> colonial powers Welcome that it defined the nineteenth century. Talk about the shittiness of colonial powers. It's the title of the episode. Thank <laughs> you for joining us. I know. Welcome to this art history one hundred and one class that you did not sign up for. No. Hello, Sotans. Thank you for joining us on this, your most recent artistic adventure. My name is Sarah Kensler, and I am a co-host of this podcast right here that you are listening to right now. I suppose, by logic, that makes me, Jason McKenzie, the other co-host of this podcast that you're listening to right here, right now. I have a, a philosophical question Please. for you. So if if I am the co-host and that then makes you the co-host as well, um, am I Sarah Kensler then because you are Jason McKenzie or are you Jason McKenzie because I am Sarah Kensler? Are those things also linked? <laughs> that pause is so <laughs> I'm trying to think of something funny to say back, damn it, and sometimes I need time. So, and that leads directly into our topic for this week. Yes, leads directly into discussions of Orientalism. Can confirm this is well documented within the academic community. (laughs) Uh Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, today, if if you haven't caught on already... We will be discussing Orientalism. I'm so glad that you decided to come to this Art History Theory 101 class that you did not know that you were signing up for. Mm. Although you kind of did, because if you'd listened to us before, you know that Sarah is an art historian and is really nerdy about these kinds of things. Also, we are taking a cue uh, that we, as white people, need to do better and think uh, decolonizational thoughts and learn more about being anti-racist and, you know, uh, observing our past. And because this is an art podcast, we are doing this shared goal uh, through the lens of art. So I am super excited for you to teach me about this. There are a lot of different ways of looking at art. And when we are in this current moment, Oh, I hate that term, but I don't know how else to phrase it. Oh. I get it. Right now, this year, this second, there's a lot of discussion, uh, increased discussion um, about all different areas of culture and society and how racism is so deeply embedded that it is it is systemic. It's part of the process. It, it's unquestioned. It's almost... It's almost so well hidden and built into the fabric of art and art history that you wouldn't see it unless it was specifically called out. Luckily, there were art historians who came before myself who have defined these things, uh, albeit in different terms, but it does still apply to how we got here. Um, I will take this moment to say that a lot of the study of art history for me is about defining 
how we got to where we are now. And that doesn't just include the basics like how we got certain techniques or why only certain people, <clears throat> white men, are at the top of the art game as far as their sales of work and even the ability to create the work and even then the chance of even selling the work, etc., which we have discussed at length. Nodding vigorously. Um, <laughs> asterisk. That, uh, that we should also uh, look at the reasons why these works were created historically and what it means that they were created at the moment that they were who they were created by. So with all of those words in mind, let's talk about Orientalism. There are, there are a lot of different ways to, to evaluate works of art. And this is, I'm, I apologize in advance, this is going to uh, probably strike many of you as increasingly academic, but just bear with me, I promise it gets better. So there are specific lenses that we can use. Um, for instance, feminism. Uh, this lens focuses on women as viewer of art, as the subject of an artwork, or as the artist that created the work. Uh, there's also something like formalism, which focuses on the visuals of the work, the, the composition, the colors, etc. And that's just kind of a few of them. But my personal favorite is Orientalism. This is, this is my most favoritist of art historical theories. It centers around Western artists, so specifically uh, French and British? French and English. British, yeah, it was, it was the British Empire, yeah. So French and British artists and their portrayal of, I'm using air quotes here, Oriental cultures, which at the time, uh, early 19th century, referred to people living in <clears throat> Asia, North America, and the Middle East. Yes, they are all the same culture. Didn't you know that? No, of course they are not. Um, and if anybody's wondering if you've heard the word Oriental before, in relation to like a pattern, like an oriental rug uh, or oriental food. Please stop using that. Um, it just, it's, it is reminiscent of a time when uh, Western cultures believed that all of the cultures of the Middle East, Northern Africa and Asia were all the same. There was no differences between them and it's just insulting to think that. So, um, but, but really, that lumping together of cultures, that was the point. So there's this guy named Edward Said. Edward Said was a, uh, a cultural theorist. Um, unfortunately, he is deceased now because I would really love to work with him. But he was the first one to posit that Western artists' visualization of these non-Western cultures was inherently and completely tied to the colonial relationship between those two cultures, and that therefore the works that resulted were inherently political. With me so far? Question. Answer. Do you know about when this Edward person lived? He was a mid 20th century, so like 1970s. Yeah, so the book that I'm referring to is actually called Orientalism, it was published in, in 1978, so it was close. I'm just shocked that it took until the 70s, the late 70s, uh, for this to be named and spoken and actualized. Like, that is just so late. 
<sighs> yes, collect Yes, well, um, to address that extremely brief briefly, uh, a lot of a lot of theories of cultural examination, like Orientalism, like feminism, came about in the post-war era specifically. This was after World War II. There had been a huge upheaval in the United States, and there was this cultural question about what it meant to be a Western society and what the pillars of that society were. And so it allowed for, again, this is very brief, but it allowed for a, a more intellectual examination of, of the why and the how at that time. I mean, it's also, you know, civil rights era. It's also Vietnam. Like there was just a lot of rebellion against the image of what being a Western culture should be that was pretty strong in like the 40s and 50s and then it just all it all went to hell which was a good thing it was a good thing so i hope that made sense did that make sense i'm with you okay all right cool okay so why does it matter then why that, why why why, why why for indeed why for does it matter that we examine the relationship between Western European artists who have been dead for so long, uh, and their their subject matter of Eastern cultures. Well, I have my own reason, um, mainly because the works created by European artists at this time look extremely realistic. Um, so this is something that I've encountered a lot when I address this topic, which was part of my master's thesis, um, <laughs> is that. How how can these works be politically biased if they're so accurate? And the accuracy then refers to, um, you know, how they represent architecture and people and environment. Well, everybody, how you see the world is politically biased just because of your identity and the, you know, culture, geographical location uh, you know, privileges and all this other stuff um, that comes with it, that, you know, the artist is still making choices, even if they're very skilled at realism and depicting a scene uh, that has realistic looking people and objects, like that, that person is still making choices. And that artist is still themselves. And if they are a white colonialist, and they have, you know, a sense of superiority to other people, where um, they think that something that they're seeing in this other culture is particularly strange. You know, there's there's still so many ways, like little hints of color usage or where you place something within a composition that can show how you revere something, how something else is made to be juxtapose and it looks extra strange what have you so that's that's my guess you're pretty close yeah. um so <laughs> yeah i mean you're absolutely right that one of the things that we should keep in mind i say we because obviously everybody listening is completely 100 percent invested in this particular line of academic thinking um <laughs> is that uh you should always consider the context of the artist always cannot be ignored 
always the context of the artist. And I don't necessarily mean artist intent. I mean, when were they born? What was the political climate around which they were born? What was their position in society? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, the way in which they represent something, even if the representation itself looks incredibly lifelike, looks like a photograph and even uh, politically motivated and necessarily untrue, guys, just a heads up. Um, we should actually talk about that at some point, probably. We live in the age of Photoshop. Well, even before then. Well, yeah, even I mean, even pre-photo like painting, you can still use the, the you know essentially the same tools or you know tricks like artwork hacks in a photo as you could in any other composition. So, um, for Orientalism specifically, the reason that it was um, and is and is able to be proven to be politically motivated um, is that we get so many more images of grand architecture, uh, we get half-naked women in harems, we get, um, there's actually one specifically, there's two pieces that we'll be posting uh, for your visual enjoyment. They're beautiful pieces, really. Um, they're by a dude named Jean-Léon Jérôme. He was a French guy, and he lived in the early 19th century. Uh, I think he was born in like 1830-something. Um, anyway, he traveled to North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, um, which was at the time colonized by France. Um, and he made this work called the Snake Charmer. Um, and he also made a work called the Carpet Merchant, which lives at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, actually, up on the third floor. I was going to say, that sounds familiar, and I have, like, a yeah, picture it, in my mind. I am 100% sure that there was a print in the gift shop of that oh, yeah. work when I worked oh, there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that that image is on the front of so many art historical textbooks. Like, I can't even, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous, as they say. <laughs> You know, Jean-Léon Jérôme was an incredibly talented artist, um, and he had the the schooling, of course, to back it up. But, um, you know, he had access to materials, he could travel. And so, like, no, he didn't paint these from life. He did do sketches and then bring the sketches back to his studio. He used models. That was a very common uh, artistic practice in the 19th century. The reason that it's politically motivated is because of the scenes that he chose to interpret it, to interpret, and the scenes he did not choose, choose to interpret. Um, so the snake charmer is this visually stunning piece. You've got a wall that forms the background um, that is covered in these like beautiful blue and gold mosaics. You have men uh, who are very distinctly dressed in an Arab manner i do not know which culture this was specifically so i um ask temporary pardon for my generalization of this category of dress um and then there is a naked little boy standing with his back to the audience with a snake wrapped around his body and he's performing for the men 
So if you're European, well, like many of us are, I'm European. I mean, I am German and Scandinavian. Yeah, French and Irish. Look at that. Um, so if you are a European citizen, a French citizen in the 19th century, and you go to an art exhibition because you're classy and you see these images of air quotes, the Orient, and all the images show are this beautiful architecture um, and these figures wearing a dress that you are not familiar with and they are watching a naked boy and, and this appears to be in public, you would be scandalized and possibly titillated. Um, you would definitely be intrigued and there is nothing about the contrast between the French culture and society that existed in the 19th century and this image, this one slice of Arab society that would make you think, oh yes, we are definitely equal on all levels. This, this image and, and others like it, there are images of harems, there are images of um, you know, beggars on the street, um, even images just of architecture, it would have seemed so strange and so mysterious to a European audience. And it definitely would have reinforced the idea that yes, colonialism, super necessary. These people are definitely culturally below us. They allow children to walk around naked in the street. They allow their women to consort with each other and multiple men openly. They allow this, um, this method of dress that reveals certain body parts, um, it would have seemed, yeah, I mean, really, it would have seemed absolutely scandalous. And so that just, it just positions any culture that is not Western um, as less than, as the other, which is another term that you will hear quite frequently when discussing Orientalism. So that's what I'm referring to, even though these pieces were drawn from life, they were drawn from the artist's experience in many cases, and the rendition of them is so, so lifelike. They're only slices, it's only a quarter of a half of a percent of the breadth and depth of uh, Eastern cultures and Asian cultures and North African cultures. Um, and the fact that artists from France and Britain chose these specific slices of this culture is what makes them politically motivated. These images reinforce and validate Western ideas of the Arab world as beautiful, mysterious, but ultimately still subservient to the developed European world. Um, hence the political nature. It's also, it's almost like propaganda. Um, Said himself even called it, quote, a powerful political instrument of domination. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, accurate. I agree. Actually, there's this really great quote that I totally found on Wikipedia. No shame. Mm -hmm. No shame. Um, no shame. From this magazine called The Nation that was published in 1980 that illustrates this point even further, but it uses a more contemporary context. So, um, so far as the United States seems to be concerned, it is only a slight overstatement to say that Muslims and Arabs are essentially seen as either oil suppliers or potential terrorists. Very little of the detail, the human density, the passion of Arab Muslim life has entered 
the awareness of even those people whose profession it is to report the Arab world. What we have instead is a series of crude, essentialized caricatures of the Islamic world presented in such a way as to make that world vulnerable to military aggression. Um, to get away from art for a minute, any time that you've seen uh, an action movie where the villain is some sort of generalized Arab terrorist, like, my God. Um, they don't even have to be identified as Arab. They have a Middle Eastern accent um, that is that is recognizable to Western and specifically United States audiences as Middle Eastern. I mean, it just, it's insane how much this idea of Orientalism, how a, a theory of cultural superiority that was built hundreds of years ago still permeates our images and media in 2020. Uh, so I wanted to uh, kind of end this very academic discussion with a discussion of Disney's Aladdin. Are you familiar? <laughs> yes, I have seen both the original and the newest one as well, the live action remake. So I'm yeah. ready. I, yeah. I researched for this. <laughs> Many years of watching Disney movies. I mean, Aladdin is not the only Disney movie that has Yes. Um, but I just, this is another example of Orientalism at its finest, and even maybe even more so since it, uh, it tends to be folded into one's consciousness at quite an early age, as it is True. made for children. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a really excellent uh BuzzFeed video that I will link in, in the show notes that talks about um, what Disney princesses would actually have worn. And the segment on Jasmine is particularly interesting in that Jasmine in Disney's Aladdin from the 90s is dressed so skimpily, so skimpily, like She's got Which is fine. Women's bodies, you're empowered to wear whatever the F you want. But historically speaking, geographically speaking, culturally speaking, not accurate. Well, I would even say like the idea of of women's choice to wear whatever they want doesn't necessarily factor into an examination of art or visual culture from an Orientalist standpoint. Um, because the power dynamic is not between men and women necessarily. It's between cultures. It's between Western and Eastern. Um, Very true. I yeah. just want, you know, no slut shame in here. We oh, no. All. No, 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 so, no. Like when we say skimpily, we don't mean, we. I mean, awesome. We love it. We're whatever. But just like, you know, we do not come from that point. We're all inclusive on the dressing uh, scale. But... Dressing the skimp, free yes. the free the boobalies, but the the presentation of Jasmine is that she's just she's a very sexualized character, especially when you compare her to, I don't know, literally any other character in that entire movie. Um, True, she is showing the most skin. She has this teeny tiny waist and these really voluptuous hips. Her hair is 
um, really voluptuous. Like it matches the, um, the curve that they made her body have, but also her, the image of the fabric and the style of clothing that she wears is just Arab enough to make it seem like it's real. And of course, when you're, you know, if you are a, um, an American child who has no idea what the Arab world is and you see this movie, you're like, oh, that's a real thing. Like, you know, the desert is a real thing. You know, the Eastern uh, cultures are a real thing. And this movie is your first introduction to that culture. So you see it as, even as a child, you see it as a very sexualized culture. It's, it's very, um, it's, it's all about the sexualization of women. Um, and it's all about the opulence of the palace that she lives in. Um, and her father, of course, is this really ridiculous, uh, very British Sultan, <laughs> um, who does has he have a British accent. He does. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, it has been a while. I can't really place it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He does oh, have sorry. a British accent. Funny. Uh, actually Jafar is the only one whose accent well, even then, he's got like this drawling British type accent. It's like, it's no, nothing about this is is accurate at all. Um, but I but, wonder if he's the same voice actor that that played Scar in Lion King. Because when I'm trying to picture Jafar's voice, I'm hearing Scar with that you know long type of talking. Your Majesty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My point is, though, um, that the the BuzzFeed video shows that a 12th and 13th century woman, which is around the time that the story of Aladdin is supposed to take place, would have worn many more layers of clothing, even though it would have been just as opulent. And it presents a whole different image of Jasmine. Um, but that was not the point of the imagery in Aladdin. The point of the imagery in Aladdin was to accentuate the difference of this culture from a Western culture. Um, it was being made by Western artists and a Western company, Disney, for a Western audience. White man. Super white man. Um, so I- Very I, rich white man. I hope that that illustrates the, the modern interpretation of Orientalism that comes directly from this study of uh, of 19th century art. Um, and I think it's important to say as well that Said also applied this theory to music and literature. That was actually his mm. main gig. Art history was kind of a secondary consideration. Um, and many other art historians have taken it further than even he did. But uh, this can be applied to both music and literature as well. Well, that's really excellent reporting, Sarah. I, I feel like I've learned something here today. And, you know, I have gotten my, you know, daily dose of enragement at colonialism. Good God, me too. I mean, for this hour, I mean, it really happens so much throughout the day, but it's kind of the end of the day now when we are recording. Right, so. yeah. Well, I mean, that's my secret, though. I'm always enraged. <laughs> yes. 
aren't we all constantly enraged anyway um i really hope that everybody add this to the list of things to be uh, enraged about yeah colonialism white supremacy western supremacy totally a thing i really hope that everybody enjoyed that discussion of orientalism i hope that it made sense uh if you have questions or if you vehemently disagree with me i would love to hear what you think you can email us at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com or you can message us on the ig at state of the arts pod and let us not forget that our music is provided by the awesome the amazing the absolutely local the von tramps Hey, hey, Jason, I, I want you to know that I'm happy for you. I wish nothing but the best for you both. Sorry. Both is in you and me, the co-hosts of this year's podcast. I, yeah, I, okay. I suppose so. Alanis Morissette was mad at you when she wrote that song, so. No. Me trying to apply it to our situation doesn't make much sense, really. I was but a wee babe when that song was written. I was too... But my mom bought me Jagged Little Pill on cassette tape for Christmas. Yes. Not understanding what it was all about. And then she played it at at Christmas on Christmas Day. And that song came on. And I was too young to know what going down in a on you in a theater meant. But of course she knew what it meant. And my grandparents were there. And I just remember that line playing. And my grandparents looking at my mother. And my mother being like, whoop. And like running over to the cassette player and turning it off. And I was like, what? That must have been something bad. What was it? And nobody would tell me. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm.